I think that what we need to really be talking about is how to, how to just get informed. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We have with us today, Nancy Levin, life coach, podcaster, and author of multiple books on building self-worth and financial power. And this season of Mindful Wealth, we're talking about women and wealth. And Nancy, this is why we reached out to you today. So tell us a little bit about your journey through life and what led you to be sitting here on the show with us today. (laughs) So thank you for having me, first of all. And, you know, I am definitely a proponent of we teach what we need to learn. And my journey into this conversation of wealth comes from the place of first looking at self-worth and connecting for myself that self-worth and net worth were very intertwined. So the catch-22 for me was during my divorce mediation. And because I didn't have the self-worth to say no, I lost net worth. And I say catch 22 because it's one of those things that I would really not have been able to learn had I not gone through that experience. And it was really then I was able to look at that connection and see how different things would have been if I had been able to stand up for myself, how different things would have been if I had been able to say no. Also for me, the piece around self-responsibility, you know, after the mediation, I was still using the language that, you know, he took or I had to give. And the truth of the matter is everything shifted in me when I was able to come to the place of self-responsibility of, I said yes to this, or, you know, I agreed to this. And so that's sort of part of the framework of what really led me into wanting to explore self-worth and net worth. Heavy. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's how we learn our most difficult lessons, right? It's through those personal tragedy, kind of trauma, traumatic experiences. Yep. Nancy, we talk about true wealth. You know, people talk about fulfillment, you know, well-being. Mm-hmm. We talk about true wealth. It's kind of mm-hmm. that all-encompassing thing. Yep. What does that mean for you? How, how would you define what it takes to become truly wealthy? Yeah, I mean, I also look at it in a holistic, in a holistic way. So it's not, you know, it's like, it's about money, but it's not about money. (laughs) So it is also about, you know, how, what are the ways we define success in our own lives? Freedom, contentment, satisfaction, you know, the way that we are resourced in terms of our energy or our time. So I look at all of that as well. And what does a follow-up question, like, what are some of the levers that people can pull on there. Like, you know, obviously there's the financial 
aspect, but you know, you referenced a bunch of other things, contentment, you know, the metrics we use for success. What kind of things can people work with in order to feel more wealthy and not just financially? Yeah. So I am also a big proponent of boundaries. (laughs) I wrote a book called setting boundaries will set you free. And I believe that boundaries really are the scaffolding that allow us to curate and create the life that we most want to live. So I believe that having really clear, healthy boundaries is what gives us time freedom or gives us energy freedom. And I believe that most of us are, you know, we're often drained or overwhelmed or burned out because we don't have the healthy boundaries in place. So I do believe having really clear boundaries allows us to experience the true wealth. So I'm going to deepen the follow-up a little bit here. So take someone like myself who has horrible Mm -hmm. boundaries. Say you're in this place, you're overwhelmed all the time. You have just all kinds of stuff you have to do, you know, lots of responsibilities, you know, run a business, work full-time, have a wife, have two kids. I don't think I'm unique in that, buddy. Right. How do you begin to set boundaries? Yeah. So the first, so let let me begin with defining boundaries the way that I, I work with them. Boundaries are the limits that we set around what we will or will not do, accept, or tolerate. Hmm. So the way that we begin setting boundaries is first getting really clear on what is a priority for us. And, you know, what's interesting about the word priority is it is a singular term that somehow turned into a plural. Hmm. But when you pluralize, priorities, it really dilutes the meaning. So we have to first begin with what is the clear priority? So what is the vision that we're holding where we want to focus first and foremost? And we let that be the guiding force for our choices and actions. So once we have that sort of clarity of what is what is the top priority and what is I mean, there there will be sub priorities, but really what is the primary priority and what is the vision I'm holding, then we really want to make sure that we are using that as the gauge by which to measure the choices we make and the actions we take. Are you thinking about this in like a macro or micro? Like I I could. Oh, Okay. It's from the micro. I mean, it has to begin with the micro. So it has to begin with, you know, very clearly looking at, you know, where are you saying yes when you want to say no? Hmm. Even, you know, starting there, you know, what are you saying yes to that you want to say no to? And it also goes into, you know, how are you structuring your time? What are the time leaks? You know, especially when if, you know, we work for ourselves or we work from home, there's a lot of blur. You know, if you look at it from the aspect of, okay, I'm going to work these days, these hours, then what happens is if I'm if I'm outside of those bounds, I'm crossing my own boundaries. And that's really the most important point is that if our boundaries are being crossed, we are the ones crossing them. Mm-hmm. So we all you know, say something like, you know, other people are crossing our boundaries and that's absolutely not true. We are the ones who are crossing the boundaries. So we have to be, we have to really be steadfast 
and hold true to what to what works best for us in terms of time, in terms of space, in terms of taking time for ourselves and recognizing that, you know, we we cannot say yes to everything and that that's a true that's a true road to burnout. <laughs> okay. So I have a long list of things that I would call a priority, right? Right. I just listed some of them, work, my yeah. family, little kids, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Right. So when I'm when I'm asking the question about micro versus macro, I guess are you talking about time blocking? In other words, this hour, my my, you know, my my micro priority is this thing. But throughout the day, you know, and I don't I don't know if this is you too, but I get 300 emails, I get, you know, dozens of phone calls, I get. So how do you when the world is coming at you? So here's the here's the first thing I'll say is that other people's urgency doesn't need to be yours. Oh, okay. And yeah. <laughs> I have agency, you're saying? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> right. Other people's other people's urgency is not yours. And really, every single choice we make and every action we take does only one of two things. It serves our vision and our priority, or it sabotages our vision or priority. Say say that one more time. I, sure. Every single decision every and choice we make. Every single choice, decision, action serves our priority and vision or sabotages our priority and vision, period. So what happens then is to look at, does this, you know, will this serve or will this sabotage? And at least start becoming conscious of it. Even if you choose to do the sabotaging thing, don't do it unconsciously. Yeah. This is the soundbite interview. Like it's using <laughs> things like so clearly that I think like we we kind of know this stuff, but you just make it so clear. And I'm like, if I could walk around with this phrase in the in top of mind all day long, like man, would things ever change? Like that urgency thing really. Yeah. Hit home I, for listen, me. I under I understand. I mean, I used to be famous for replying to an email before I even received it. You know, I, you know. And, and I really had to get to a place where understanding that not everything needs urgent attention and that I can actually make a choice. The other thing I'll say that has made a significant difference for me in my own life is really being very discerning and being boundaried about my mornings, for example. So I go to sleep with my phone in airplane mode. So when I wake up in the morning, there are no notifications on my phone and I meditate and I journal before I ever put my phone back on Wi-Fi. So I have already spent time with myself, given, you know, given myself what I need before I let the world in. And then I'm very particular about, you know, what needs my attention first and how to structure my communication. Makes me feel very privileged that we got through the uh, (laughs) the various firewalls. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I respond to everything. I attend to everything. It's just that not everything needs immediate attention. And I think, you know, all of that wanting immediate gratification also kind of flips into feeling like we need to respond. And it also comes from people pleasing and fear of conflict and, you know, all of these other sources that have us react in ways that aren't necessarily best for us. I I feel like I'm on the cusp of understanding this. 
like th- throughout my life uh, and I'm in, I'm in this place where I'm like, okay, I can actually pursue the things that are important to me, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that understanding, it hasn't actually translated into action yet. Mm-hmm. So what is this understanding is important. Yep. What are the scaffolding decisions or the scaffolding choices I can make yeah. Yeah. that will push me over the edge? Say, you know what? I'm going to say no to this and this and this. I'm going to focus on this thing that's important to me. Great. So first, we have to first look at, we all have our own version of our knee-jerk yes. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a request comes in and we say yes. And we do it out of obligation or responsibility, or we don't want someone else to be angry or disappointed. We do it because we want to be the hero. You know, there's all these sorts of reasons we say yes. I have and, all those reasons. All those reasons apply course. to me. Of course. <laughs> and the only real reason to say yes is desire. So if it's not a desire, it's a no. Hmm. And what I will often work with clients around is if a direct request comes in and you're not ready to say no, simply say, I'll get back to you tomorrow. Build in a pause so that you don't do the knee jerk and you actually get to consider, is this something I want to do? Does this serve or does this sabotage? Why am I saying yes? Why, you know, all of this. And then to be able to say no with grace and with gratitude instead of excuses, you know, we can simply say, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm not available. Or uh, I appreciate the invitation. It doesn't quite fit in with what my priorities are right now. And we don't need to do a song and a dance. We don't need to make up a story. We can simply say no. And that clarity also helps the people that we are interacting with trust us even more. Because if I'm honest with my no, then you can trust my yes. So that's one piece. The other piece is, and I don't know if this rings true for you, but I'll share it, is, you know, so many of us are other referenced. So we're really focused on the people outside of us. What do they think? What do they want? What do they need? What do they feel? We're constantly tuning into, you know, taking their temperature in order to know ours. So another piece here, and this is really sort of the boundary of our own of our own thinking, you know, to be able to come into what do I think? What do I want? What do I need? What do I feel? Instead of having all of that attention go outward. So those are really the starting points. And that's, you know, those are the things that will really have us take the action. And I'll I'll add in as a follow-up because it's something that often comes up when I talk about this is, you know, well, isn't it selfish? And I am on my soapbox about reclaiming selfishness because I think we have given selfish a bad rap. I think we praise selflessness and in selfless, we disappear. You know, there is, there's absolutely nothing wrong with really taking into account what we need and making sure that we have it. And when guilt arises in this context, I believe it is an indicator that we're on the right track. There, there, I mean, I, I don't want to take us too far down this, but the, as you were speaking, there's something that struck me and that is there is no service without self. Right. Right. You have to, you're not giving. If you're selfless, you're not giving. You're just right. being trod upon, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. If we uh, just backpedal a little bit and talk about uh, worthy in particular, mm-hmm. because since we're talking about, you know, women and wealth, yeah, just maybe flesh out for us the connection that you see there between this aspect of, you know, self-worth and boundaries and how that then translates into wealth. I think you alluded to that a little bit in your intro, but I wonder if yeah. you can just spell that out for us a little bit more clearly. Yeah, so it also really links with our beliefs. So if we believe we are not enough or not good enough, we will also believe that there isn't enough and we won't have enough. You know, these are very intertwined. And so when we allow ourselves to shift our own perception of enoughness and allow ourselves to shift into the place of self-confidence, which means self-acceptance, self-trust, all of this will ultimately be able to boost what is available to us. What I see with women in particular is we tend to already believe that there's a ceiling on our havingness. So we in some ways, don't believe it's possible to receive more than we have. And because of that belief, we don't actually open ourselves to receiving anymore. So we think that there is a limit. We think that life is a zero sum game. If someone else has, I go without. If I have, someone else goes without. We really haven't learned to trust the, in the enoughness and I don't want to go too woo-woo, but you know, but really the enoughness that there is enough. There is enough to go around. Even if we look at jealousy and envy, you know, we often will have an experience of someone else has something and we feel jealous or we feel envious. And I also look at that as if someone else has it, it means it's possible for me too. So just even these slight, you know, mindset shifts and reframes around the way that we relate to what we have and what's possible to have. And can we actually open ourselves up to receiving? Because I think that's women are so trained to not want that in turn, they're not trained in how to actually open up to receive. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if I, I'm kind of like listening and at the same same time, kind of correlating this with, you know, my anecdotal perception and, you know, I wonder I think it might be maybe not want for yourself, right? Right. Because correct. I think a lot of us like want a whole lot of things for the people around us. Like, right. I'm, I'm talking, right. I'm talking about yeah. wanting for yourself. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I think you mentioned in, in worthy that you have to, before you are worthy, you have to see yourself as worthy of abundance. You have, you have to see yourself as, and do you think that's a gender difference? Is that what I hear? In my experience, and I've coached, you know, all different kinds of people. (laughs) Uh, I definitely see that it is something that women tend to struggle with the most. And I think it comes from, I think it comes from, you know, this whole idea of the people pleasing or the peacekeeping or the conflict avoiding or beliefs around, you know, staying small or being invisible or being silent you know, many women are not encouraged to be big and forceful and powerful and loud as children. 
they are encouraged to, you know, zip it up. There's, there's an interesting, I don't know if it's quite a corollary, but there's a lot of research on male versus female confidence. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking specifically about decision-making and in the, in the investment world. Mm-hmm. And men make decisions more quickly with less research, less yep. intelligently because of an overconfidence. That's right. And I'm, I'm wondering if our, I'll put myself in that category, our ability to be bigger and larger uh, because that training you just referenced as kids yeah. Yeah. also leads to some stupidity and overconfidence, right? Some, some mistaken, but we feel good about it. And so we're, right. we're able to express like, yeah, we know what we're doing. Just get out of our way. And we'll do this thing. And that, that then translates into all kinds of different, That's you right. know, f- you're moving forward, gender differences. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. Whereas I think women tend to not trust themselves as much, you know, second guess themselves. All of that is, you know, part of the the confidence equation too, you know, or beat ourselves up, you know, not to say that men don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to go too, you know, know. I think, I think it's really, it's really more common and natural for women. I guess, I guess it's, it's the thing I'm trying to point out is, is it that women beat themselves up more or that they beat themselves up the right amount and men don't beat themselves up enough? (laughs) I'm not advocating for anyone to beat themselves up. (laughs) But I do think that that's sort of my word, not yours, yep. but that sort of false sense of confidence yeah. allows men to do things that, you know, that many women don't yeah. allow themselves to do. I, and I, so I find that so interesting because I, I, I was trained, I was taught early in my career to fake it till I made it. Right. You know, and I absolutely knew that I did not have the skills. I absolutely right. knew, but I had right. to pretend. Right. Yeah. You know, I, you know, without even saying like men and women, I think it's also the strong masculine or the strong feminine. You know, I definitely have a strong masculine. So I am definitely more of the, as much as I have my people pleaser and all that stuff, I'm definitely someone who will tell you I can do every single thing and then I'll figure it out later. You know, so I think it's a, you know, it, part of it is the wiring around the way we put, the way we create the perception of ourselves for someone else. Where do you think that you got that? Is that something that was natural to you? Or do you think parents trained that? Or where where does that come from? What I believe is, so when I was born, I had a two-year-old brother who was severely ill and he died when I was six. I know that so much of my drive is around self-preservation. And so I certainly believe that, you know, my independence, my sovereignty, all of that, my self-sufficiency, you know, originated out of that point, because even though I couldn't, as a small child, you know, I couldn't have thought this per se, but I know the belief that was formed was, you know, better to have no needs because his are more important or better to be self-sufficient so that I don't bother my parents because they need to put attention on him or, you know, whatever it might be. And even, you know, better, uh, you know, if, if I am imperfect like he is, I will die. So, you know, I really need to double down on my perfectionism. So I think all of those things are what sort of have had me put myself out in a certain way into the world creating a persona 
of, you know, I can do, I can do everything. Hmm. So, and I think that's just so interesting because, you know, there is the, obviously like the nature nurture debate every, anytime you talk about women, this is a huge subject, right? Yeah. But I think that there's this business of like, one thing is for sure is that the construction of the social personas that we function with is incredibly powerful. Yes. And like, I really think, you know, that, that this business of like overconfidence and like, I think it was, you know, we just did a previous interview, maybe it was with Rebecca Walker with Liza, I don't remember now, but you know, there was this talking about how men have this incredible pressure to, you know, be providers and be the source of solutions and, you know, all these kind of different things and that it forces them to create a social persona that's structured around that. That's Whereas right. us as women, it's, you know, more of this kind of self-effacing, thinking of other people's needs, like, you know, don't be too loud, don't be mean, right. don't do this, yep. don't be selfish, you know, yep. and that that leads us to be like more self-effacing, even if your gut reaction is not that, you know, and, right. and for someone who also has like a fairly strong, like masculine personality, like for me, that's often been a thing where it's like, okay, like there, there's part of me wants to do something, but I'm like, uh, right. no, that's too much, too much, too much. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, we, we just had this conversation, a different conversation, actually, with uh, with Rebecca Walker about narrative story writing, um, redefining our relationships through these narratives with wealth, overcoming trauma. I, and I know you have a book coming up or is it already released or will it be released shortly? I, I just got my advanced copy. There we go. The Art of Change. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The Art of Change. Is it's that what a- you're driving at there? Is that what I'm driving at? The, art the, of the narrative? The, the, the Yeah. Yeah, very much. So it's a guided journal, actually. And the subtitle is Eight Weeks to Making a Meaningful Shift in Your Life. And the way it's presented is, you know, there's sort of eight dimensions of reinvention. And I look at reinvention as returning to the essence of who we are before we were taught to package ourselves to be digestible to others. (laughs) And so this really gives us the opportunity to, through journal prompts, to be able to explore and excavate and understand and inquire and discover. And so follow-up question, like what, what is so important about narrative? What is so special about narrative? Because again, you know, in our conversation, we referenced the conversation with Rebecca Walker, but so she came out with a book that's really about, you know, working through trauma mm-hmm. and rewriting your place, right? By by reviewing some of the stories, the foundation stories we might have that are negative about us or that we put a negative spin on. And, you know, for right. her, it's kind of like a, you know, a feminist and like African-American kind of power thing where she looks at how people can write themselves back into the position in the story that makes more, that serves them better. Right. And so, like, I'm curious, you know, for you, I, I, I feel like there must be some kind of a special thing around yes. narrative. But yeah. how would you frame that? You know? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of the pillars that I'm working with in this book are looking at our beliefs, our limiting beliefs that are formed when we are under the age of 10. We are too young to process and digest what's happening. So we make events and circumstances mean something about us. So we draw conclusions about ourselves. So very much like what I was just sharing about my brother dying and the conclusions I drew were, you know, I need to be self-sufficient. I need, you know, I need to be perfect because if I'm broken like he is, I'll die. You know, all of these beliefs that I internalize 
that then as I grow up, I am, because our beliefs are magnetic, I am attracting toward me people, circumstances, relationships that corroborate and reinforce these beliefs. We have an idea that someone outside of us is going to change our beliefs, but we have to change our beliefs ourselves. Just like we have the idea that someone outside of us is going to, you know, deem us worthy. And so we end up hitching our sense of worthiness to someone else's wagon, <laughs> you know, but the truth is we, it, that's all an inside job because once we shift on the inside, then we will start to attract, you know, what we now believe. So those beliefs are really start the beginning of our narrative that we came by unconsciously. So part of shifting the narrative is as an adult being able to consciously create new beliefs and tie them to actions so that they're not simply words. And, you know, sort of similarly, there's also a concept in the book that I talk quite a bit about in terms of our underlying commitments, also formed when we were under the age of 10. Most of us believe that we are most committed to what we say we want. However, if there is a discrepancy between what you say you want and what you're actually experiencing, the truth of the matter is you're more committed to something else that you may not even be aware of. And it may be some promise you formed in childhood, a coping mechanism or a survival strategy. So, you know, I, for example, you know, I had a client who was an amazing opera singer, but every time she got on stage, you know, she got stage fright. She couldn't even sing. We were able to work through all of that, go all the way back to childhood, traumatic events, and the belief, you know, this commitment to staying silent is what kept her safe and out of, out of harm from her father. You know, so these underlying commitments say, you know, really serve us as children, but they become the seeds of our self-sabotage as we grow. So it's, these are the narratives that we are untangling so that we can really be conscious about our lives moving forward instead of just defaulting to the past unconscious. Mm -hmm. So just peeling it apart a little bit, I, I'm 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 getting a sense, and I should just say that I'm I'm I live in Berkeley, California. Yeah. Um. So I I fall very left of center, and I'm getting a sense from the conversation right now that there's a lot of, it's a lot of your responsibility to overcome whatever your situation is, and and I believe that I do believe that, but is there a place for within that to say you know what, some stuff is unfair. In some cases, I am being like prevented from improving, becoming, or is it really just all an internal game? I don't, I don't mean game in a negative way. I, I shouldn't right. say game. Apologize. So what I believe is that if we stay in a mode of blame and victimhood, we actually don't allow or suppressing our own power to take responsibility because now Obviously, there are exceptions, you know, abuse, especially for children. You know, there are there. I mean, you know, if we look at systemic racism, if we look at there are lots, you know, I mean, 
there are, I'm, I mean, I'm, I would say I'm more talking about sort of quote unquote garden variety life. Mm. You know, there are always going to be extremes. There are always going to be exceptions, but I do believe that the real work and the freedom comes from taking responsibility instead of staying in the role, staying in the role of victim. And I also believe we can do far more than we give ourselves credit for. I believe we can change our lives far more than we think we can. That was a tough question, Jonathan. I wouldn't have wanted to be on the receiving end of that one. <laughs> she handled it perfectly. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I think that I, I totally agree. I think that we have our outcomes will be better if we do take responsibility. Um, yeah. And I can't say that as well because I am white, male, middle-aged, six foot five, you know, I have every advantage. Right. So when I say that, it's like, uh, it's, it's interpreted as, you know, let's make sure these people get, get their stuff together. And that's not right. what I, you right. said it, like you suppress your own ability. If you're yeah. a victim and you believe in that, you suppress your own ability to overcome. That's, I believe that to be true. Beautiful. Yeah, I do. So let's just, you know, tack back a little bit to, to women and wealth. And, you know, there's a lot of angles that one can take that from. So, you know, we mentioned earlier, there's the, uh, you know, unpaid labor in the home or the wage gap or, you know, the equity and wealth gap. There's a lot of different things. In your opinion, what's the main area or the one thing that you think more women could focus on that would begin to bridge the wealth gap, be it, you know, in, in well-being or in finance or something else? What, what do you think is the one thing we should be talking about? Being informed. You know, that's something that I, that I really, I think many women, you know, I don't want to say all, but like many women don't really know about their finances or don't really know, you know, don't partake in certain aspects of it or still have to ask permission for spending or, you know, whatever the construct might be. And I think that there's also the idea of sort of turning a blind eye or putting on the blinders about, about certain aspects. So I think that what we need to really be talking about is how to, how to just get informed that it can, you know, this whole idea of, of, wealth, whether it be investing or whether it be, you know, what, whatever it looks like, but what can you do to actually open your eyes and take a real look at what's happening and learn how to make your own choices about things instead of uh, defaulting or deferring to someone else. And I do think that in there comes this conversation we were having before. What are the beliefs you have about yourself and money? What are, you know, what are the messages you know, what are the ways you're holding yourself back from having more? What are, you know, if you grew up with, you know, your parents talking about, you know, people, rich people are greedy or rich, you know, people with a lot of money are bad or, you know, whatever, you're going to have that imprint and you're not going to, you're going to, you know, unconsciously keep yourself down. You know, even I'm, I was coaching a client who grew up very, you know, very poor she was stepping into making a lot of money. And what she came to realize was her fear about making a lot of money was that all of her family would come out of the woodwork and have an expectation that she would then support them. And that was what was holding her back from earning more. You know, so all of these things are very insidious. 
But I think that, you know, educating ourselves, informing ourselves, understanding instead of just like, oh, I don't understand money. Yeah. I think that's really, really great advice. And I, you know, I think maybe again, you know, uh, this, this social persona that we are kind of socialized into projecting where, you know, maybe it's kind of not our job to be the provider or whatever. But I mean, I certainly know a lot of men as well who would be well served by educating themselves a little bit yeah. more about what Certainly. they're doing financially and, and and just being more informed in general yeah. as a you know deferring to other people to make decisions i think that's that's really great advice do you see i'm i'm curious if you see in generations a shift in this i mean, in my work i see i see a shift i see For i sure. have I have 80 year old clients who the, the, the man has made all the decisions. The, the, the woman is just pleased. I just to make a decision that has no interest at all, right. even attending the conversation. And I'm, you know, I'm pulling teeth to get her to, to come and maybe ask a question. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas a younger generation, 35, 40 year old clients, it, it's not, not quite role reversal, but women are actually a lot more interested in learning and, and figuring it out and being, you know, being a, a more dominant, actually participant in the yeah. conversation around money. Do you yeah. sense that too? Yes. And then I'm even, you know, it's, it's, I was, I even see this, you know, in my niece and nephew, my niece is 21 and my nephew's 17. And I even see it with them. My nephew is incredibly entrepreneurial. He's a musician and he's like, really like he, he is really into, not necessarily into money, but into like understanding how this all works. And if I do this gig, I'm going to get this much. And then I've got to pay the other musicians this much. And, you know, he's really into it. And my niece and I were just traveling and even just the sort of like, Hmm, I love this thing, but do I love it enough to buy it? Or, you know, even just having, having an awareness of what money is, you know, which is, I will be the first to say, I really didn't grow up knowing what money was. I mean, it just was, it just was, but I didn't really learn about it from my parents. I didn't really, you know, until I was in my twenties, probably even really get what the deal was. So do, do you have any resources, someone that came to that conversation later in life, do you have any resources you've relied upon that say, Hey, this is where I learned. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll be honest. I was very fortunate to work with Susie Orman at, when I was when I was in my position at Hay House. So I have definitely learned quite a lot from her. And she really does speak to women. And there's a, and she has, I don't know, half a dozen books more. She um, definitely does. There's also someone else that I would recommend. Her name is Barry Tesler. And she wrote a book, you know, Barry. Okay. So oh, yeah. Book, yeah. Called The Art of Money. Yep. And she has a new workbook that just came out. And I love that she takes a financial therapy approach. She's a dear friend and that it's a very somatic approach to money. And I think that that is also incredibly helpful. Yeah. I think she basically started financial therapy she did. in the US. She, like she's she, the founder of the idea. She is. Yep. Yep. She and her husband actually came up with that term. Yep. yep. There's, a, there's also, you know, in this world of all female financial empowerment, how can I help? How can men help? What can we do? I, I, I think I find myself pushing all the time. Hey, learn more, do this. You know, I built courses. I wrote a book. Hey, do this, try it, you know, and not always receive mm -hmm. with all that much interest. So I'm curious, what else can I do both for women in my life and then for just women in our culture? What I think happens is we want to be able to feel like we can give ourselves permission to have 
That's one thing. Permission to want for ourselves and have and not feel like we have to ask or get approval. But I think that that is, that's a deeper piece for women than it just being about money. Mm-hmm. I, you know what? It's, it's, it's really striking because every single guest we've had on this season has says, had said that exact same thing, you know, about being invited to the table. And I think yeah. that's, I think it's very true. And, you know, um, so I, I have a, a background in martial arts and like one of the uh, courses that I I followed at one point was the differences of coaching male athletes and female athletes and there's a huge attrition rate of female athletes as they go through puberty and one of the things that they point at is they say that when you bring women into like a kind of a competitive sports space they want to first feel included in the group before they begin to compete with one another And I think that in terms of the way financial education happens, and certainly I know like in the real estate field where I am, it's like the guys come in and they start like kind of playing the game of who's got more, who did better, who did this, who did that. And so this learning space becomes a space of establishing a hierarchy as opposed to one where we all feel like we can just comfortably sit down at the table and like have a conversation with each other. And I think like in terms of like, you know, traditionally like male and female modes, again, you can't fully map it onto men and women. Right. There's a real thing with this, that if you begin the conversation with like, you know, bragging and establishing hierarchy, that's going to maybe alienate women to feel like I'm going to just, you know, be quiet and be in myself if I don't get up and like slowly sneak out of the room. So, (laughs) right. Um, so Nancy, this has been really a wonderful conversation. We're kind of running out of time a little bit. I wonder if you want to just tell our audience where they can find you and what's the best way to connect with you. Certainly. Thank you. Uh, everything is on my website, nancylevin.com. And I have, as you mentioned earlier, I've got a podcast. I have a coach training and certification academy. And I also have a biweekly newsletter that your audience might be interested in. It's specifically for coaches. However, I do talk a lot about building businesses, making money, how to how to create abundance, doing what you love. Thanks, Nancy. You're welcome. Bye-bye.